Next Chapter Podcasts. Next Chapter Podcasts. Hi, welcome to Greenlit. I'm Alex Legion. This is my co-host, Ryan Gibson. Hi. <laughs> and our guest today is Ryan Donahue, noted actor, filmmaker, musician, who's done many, many, many films, indie films, big films, small films, television shows like The O.C., Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and was graceful enough to play the lead in our film in 2018 for High Voltage. Ryan Donahue, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. We go way back. You are also friends with a friend of the show, Evan Ostrowski. You were in his film, Cabin Fever 3, Patient Zero. I, were you the Patient Zero? No, I was not. I was... Um, <laughs> patient I was, 3. <laughs> yeah, I was the best friend of the lead who, you know, and, and you guys kind of comic relief. I remember we met because you guys just came back from the Dominican Republic and um, right. you were you were raving about the the sort of different culture there and what a interesting uh, place it was to film. Uh, have you been back since? Well, right after we finished the film, probably less than a month, I ended up going back for another month because I had made friends with one of the hotel owners there, and he said, nice. "Come back and stay. I'll loan you my boat." And he basically just. <laughs> let me and my brother go back there and stay for a month for free. That's fantastic. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> now, Brian, I would like to know, you've been on set in the States, you've gone through that process, and you've also you know, been lucky enough to work out of the States. Can you just give us the, the differences between those two processes, or if there is any difference? I mean, I think probably one of the biggest was they didn't really use call sheets over there. So like the Dominican crew, they would, you know, we'd hand out call sheets at the beginning of the day and say, this is what we're shooting, da, da, da. And it would, you know, say, this scene's up first and blah, 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 right? But they didn't do that over there. They were just like, no, we just show up and then start shooting, you know? <laughs> uh, so that was, yeah. It was, there was a big difference between the American crew and the Dominican crew. Do you feel feel that there was an organizational issue with that? Because I think most people would say, well, the call sheet shows like what we're doing for the day and it's basically the outline for the day. Would you say that that was problematic or did you, it just work? I think it was, I mean, it was slightly problematic probably for, you know, for the first AD and the DP. But I thought they, I mean, they worked really well. They, you know, as far as the crew they all knew what they were doing. They all knew what they were supposed to do. They just kind of thought it was weird that we had to put it all on paper. But I really loved the crew. I ended up getting along with them really well and hanging out with a bunch of them, going over some of their houses and having dinner. Yeah, it was fun. So first off, I mean, you're, you're from Texas, right? You're from Houston? That's right. Well, Houston and then kind of all over. I, I was a trailer park kid for a while. I even lived in a Christian commune in Indiana for a few months. Um, shout out, shout out, yeah. Indiana. <clears throat> yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, right. But, Ryan, is that where you guys met? Ryan's also from Indiana. Yeah, he was. He was the. Uh, he was one of the counselors at the Christian commune that. Oh, I, I was going to get you. <laughs> he was the life. You, know, you were going to join no matter what. 
the lifeguard at the baptismal pool. You know, it is it is kind of strange because like Jim Jones is from there. Like, there's a lot. There's a. I mean, every place has its dark histories. All astronauts are from Ohio. All cult leaders are from Indiana. (laughs) So there's a lot of astronauts from Indiana too, though. So I don't know what that says. Well, it's close. It's adjacent. It's close. Yeah. So, uh, Christian, so your, your parents were, were seeking, you know, they were, they were looking for answers. Is that, is that what I'm getting? So my mom and dad got a divorce pretty early on. I want to say I was in second grade or the beginning of second grade. I wish I had a button. I wish I had a hot button that went like, wah, wah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say, yeah. and it was entirely your fault. They blamed you. Yeah. yeah, totally. No, so they, my dad actually had started a Christian record label that did really well. And then it came out that he was sleeping with his secretary. <laughs> and being the Christian company that it was, he, there was a morality clause. So technically his best friend and the rest of the company kicked him out because of the adultery. And right at that time, my mother started sleeping with the handyman who was kind of living with us. And so that was pretty handy then. It was for her. Yeah. Uh, And then she immediately secretly married him as soon as the divorce went through. Oh God! And like, my brother stayed with my dad for a little bit, and then me, my new crazy, abusive stepfather, and her went on this you know road trip around Texas, living in different trailer parks, and eventually in a commune in Indiana, and then back to different trailer parks in Texas. Did they stay together, Ryan? No. Actually, that story ended with us slowly hiding things in the middle of the night over a month time and then sneaking out in the middle of the night to get away from him. And the cops showed up to get him out of the trailer and he had a shootout with the cops and got away. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think this this had anything to do with your desire to, to call any of this stuff when you're acting? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, he was terrifying. So anytime I need to be scared, you know, <laughs> I can I can draw from that. Or, you know, he was, I've tried to embody his anger a few times because, you know, he was a very angry individual. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. I remember we ended up going back to the trailer after he had the shootout and he had, he had snuck back in, taken all the guns because he had, we had a bunch of guns. <clears throat> and then he rigged the trailer door to the car battery of the truck that was parked out front with a dynamite cap to make it look like if you tried to enter the trailer that he, it was going to explode. And we were there with a cop, and my brother was there at this time, actually. And I remember my brother and I opening the hood to the truck and realizing that it wasn't really tied to the battery. And so there was no explosion going to happen because the cop was like, don't touch anything. But my stepdad had showed my brother and I how to explode dynamite with, with blaster caps. So we knew that it wasn't going to blow up. Wow. Yeah. Wow. We're off, to, we're off to a huge start here. <laughs> Emotionally depressed. There's so much to <laughs> unpack. Yeah, I mean, I feel like 
all of your horror and supernatural movies are pale in comparison to the true story of you. Uh, oh, yeah. This, this, this could be an OC thing, though, too, by the way. <laughs> it's funny because, you know, you, you look very young and you vibe very young, but you've had, I mean, you started very young. So you, you've had a 20-year career and you're still, you know, a, a, just a, a relatively young man. But it seems like you get, you still get recognized to this day from OC, right? I mean, that was like a cultural touch, touchstone of a certain generation, wasn't it? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, people definitely yeah. still, I think, you know, last week I was on the beach and somebody was like, you look so much like Johnny from the OC. <laughs> and then, they, and then, like, and then they, they asked me to take pictures for their whole group. And then, you know, a couple of the girls in the group, instead of saying cheese said Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say that, and, and when, when was the great escape? So your mom, what, like how long was that sort of uh, family trauma of dealing with this, um, this sort of uh, home chaos? How old were you when you got away from that situation? Uh, well, <clears throat> there was stepdad number two, who was not physically, but just pretty emotionally abusive. He was, he was uh, not a nice person either. And I remember the last straw was I had, I had been saving part of my lunch money to buy like a mech toy. And I was, you know, probably too old to even still be buying stuff like that, but I just thought it was cool. And he found out that I was saving part of my lunch money and took the toy and gave it to his four-year-old son. And (laughs) then said that I was going to have to get spanked for it. <clears throat> and I think, I, you know, I was like, what, this must have been like, I don't know, seventh grade, eighth grade. I just remember being like, I am too old to get spanked. I'm sorry. No. So I grabbed the cordless phone. They started chasing me. So I grabbed the cordless phone and I called my dad and I just started running around the house, literally outside around the house in circles while they were chasing me. And I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I got to go. I can't. And she, my dad was like, all right, let me talk to your mom. So I threw her the phone, kept running. And, and she said, she got off the phone and said, I'll take you to the bus station tomorrow, but you have to get your, your licks. Right? Uh, yeah. God. Yeah. So I went in and acted. And I remember that was one of my greatest acting moments. They couldn't. <laughs> They couldn't see my face. So as they were spanking me, I was like making like crying sounds and like, <laughs> and, and I had the biggest shit eating grin on my face. Like, <laughs> fuck y'all. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel a thing. I didn't care. And wow. yeah, and that was it. And then we, I jumped on a fucking Greyhound and, and went to Houston to go live with my dad and my brother. Remember days and confused with the. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So you were in seventh or eighth grade. So where where did you leave? Yeah, where were you? And when you went to Houston, where were you, were you in Texas as well? Yeah, I was still in Texas. I was kind of, uh, I want to say it was called Chapel Hill or something. It was like outside of Lindale, kind of close to Tyler, Texas. So they put a seven-year-old or a seven, well, seventh grade, you're, you're probably okay. No, so, well, I don't know. Yeah, seventh grade. I was like going into eighth grade, I want to say. Yeah, he's like 13 years old. Yeah. Way too old. Yeah. 
way too old to be getting spanked. That's almost like <laughs> sexual. No, hurt. no, but I'm saying, are you old enough to be on a greyhound? But I don't know. Oh yeah, I mean, not really. Not really. Well, you know, I would say not really. Yeah, probably not. But I, you know, again, I, I was, think in that situation, good enough. I'm out of here. See you later. See the next. Well, well, here's my here's my question, Ryan. So did that? Did your mother's? And obviously, we're on a different version of the show today. But I love it. Did your relationship? with your mother was that was it damaged from then on out or did you guys make peace i mean like you know for actors i think they store i mean i store these things and i'm not an actor Mm -hmm. but i i store these events like do you feel yourself did you guys ever make peace when i was 29 years old she she finally apologized for all of it yeah she did you say she has to take her licks yeah exactly (laughs) uh no but it was funny she didn't remember a bunch of the stuff like you know a bunch of it i feel like she had just blocked out like there was a moment that i'll never forget where my first stepdad had us all sit in a circle and he had a car battery and he he was shocking us for fun right like we would like you know hold each other's hands and he would shock us right but then he started making my mom do push-ups and he was, and shocking her and she started bawling, you know, and like, like she just doesn't remember those times. And obviously that stuck with me. You know? Well, look, I mean, we're, we're already here with you and thank you for sharing all this. Was there any kind of substances involved? Was, was he drinking? Was she drinking? She, he, he was drinking for sure. Yeah. 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 Cause maybe she, there's stuff going on, you know? But yeah, sounds like and he Trump- was young too. Like looking back, I think he was like 26 or 27 years old. You know, he was, he was a kid himself at the time. It's funny you mentioned this, Ryan, because over the past two weeks, I've spent time back in Indiana with my father and we had this cathartic conversation about me growing up. And he, you know, I, he was a great dad. I remember him being a great dad, but he doesn't remember like beating me. Yeah. Like, and he has this memory. Like, I'm like, how can you? I recently just, you know, not to make this about me, but since we're talking about this, and Mm -hmm. and this is cathartic. He he said I said something recently within the past year that was pretty rot to him. It was actually terrible, and I and it was because we were having a a fight about something, and he it was a year ago. And he mentioned to me how much that had hurt him. And I said, I appreciate, I'm really sorry. I'm a terrible son. I really, I hope you forgive me that I said that, but I'm tell, let me tell you where it came from. And it was uh, something that I would say when I was a very little kid. And I said, but by the way, the reason why I said it, when was the last time I said that? And he said, uh, I, I don't know, when you were like 10. And I said, yeah. And can you remember the events that surrounded when I would say something like that? He goes, no, why? And I said, well, because I remember coming home from riding my bike and you were mad, like angry to the next level. And there were no alcohol or drugs involved and just an anger issue. And him like throwing me off of my bike and picking up my bike and throwing it against the house, and like shattering it. And I, and he did, he was like, I don't remember that at all. And I'm like, What? Yeah, I was I was blown away that he didn't remember these events in my life that they blacked out. So you saying that is really like parents don't remember this and having a uh, son myself 
and doing, and I recently got, got pretty upset with my son where I like looked at myself in the mirror and was like, oh my God, I'm a father. I'm never going to do this again. I don't see even in 20 years how I can forget that I, you know, I just don't understand how there's this memory left. It's a physiological thing. It's about, it's somebody, scientists think it's because of like the pain of childbirth, right? So you, our memories fade worse to best. And that's a self-preservation mechanism. Exactly. Well, that's what I was going to say. Self-preservation self and like, you know, like, and hiding, you know, trauma, right? Well, right. I mean, the, the worst stuff is like, don't go in there. That's where the bear lives, right? But like what they think that means is a woman has a child and it's incredibly painful. And then you get the good chemicals that come after that and the love and the good stuff. And so by the time you're ready to have another kid, you forgot about that screaming trauma of childbirth. And you're like, no, it's fine. I remember it being okay. It's mm -hmm. There's something, and in your guys' case, it would be so you can actually function for the rest of your lives and you're not just scarred and like drooling in a corner. I would disagree with that. I, I think it's haunted me for my whole life. And in fact, it's something that we've always needed to talk about. Like it wasn't until Ryan was 29 that his mom apologized. She would I would, Oh, I'm not, I would saying, I'm not saying erase it. And by the way, you guys didn't forget. They forgot because oh. they were in the throes of the emotion. You guys oh, giant recording devices. Like yeah. kids are just two giant cameras just sucking everything in, not understanding it. They're not comprehending, but they're just recording for later trauma in the psychiatrist's office, you know? I mean, we yeah. all have that feeling. And I'm a parent too. And I, I mean, it's not, I guess from my childhood, I made sure to remember when I am a bad actor because we all are. But for me, the catharsis was oh, my parents were assholes until I had a kid. And I'm like, God, this is hard, you know? And that was the beginning of my healing for my parents was like, God damn, this is hard. And it continues to be hard, you know? So, I mean, I have no, nowhere near the stories you guys have. Luckily, I, the physical part was not there, but certainly emotional and everything else. Well, so, as we all know, the emotional part can be worse than the uh, physical part. They're, they're finding that out is that our brains don't differentiate the, the scarring, the scar tissue on the brain scans are equivalent, but it doesn't mean like a little kid doesn't get it. And, and so, and so let's talk about funny ha ha movies and stuff. Yeah. So Ryan, what were the ladies like on the OC? <laughs> <laughs> Such an easy right. segue. Nice transition. Yeah, uh, no, right. and to go back to what you're talking about real fast, to go back to what you're talking about, like when yeah. you're like, when I was 13 riding the bus, I guess I had already felt like I was kind of the smart one in the household for a long time before that. Like, like there was one like, real defining moment for me. Again, stepdad number one, when we were on the way to the, Christ, uh, the Christian commune in Indiana, we had everything in our car. They get in a fight. She opens the door while we're driving. It's just like, let me out, let me out. He's like, you're not going to get out of the car. Ryan's in the car. Finally, he stops and lets us out. And we grab a pillow and a blanket apiece. And I remember walking down the highway and my mom's like, bawling and i remember just holding your hand and being like we're gonna be okay <laughs> you know right this is the best thing that could have happened to us yeah kind of and, and and then of course you know he drove back you know and it's like get in the fucking car i'll pull you across this highway by your hair you fucking bitch you know but i just remember thinking then like 
okay, you're going to have to be the grown up from now on, you know? I'm going to have to take care of myself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, probably, and probably the rest of my family. Because the person who is in charge is clearly, well, like you said, man, he's a kid himself. Like he was a kid himself. Yeah, he was. And she, she was, she was young too, kind of, you know, but she, but yeah. So when I was riding the bus to me, it was fucking nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're like, I, yeah, the, it was, it was almost like walking through that tube of shit in Shawshank Redemption. It's like, if I, I, I can crawl through this mile and a half cause I'm going to get away from everything else. Come out clean on the other yeah, side. Uh, we're, we're brought to you by uh, Greyhound Buses, the <laughs> Amtrak, the way to go. Take the bus, leave the drive into us. So, oh, that's that, that is that's a good one. <laughs> so, would you say that music as a creative outlet came first, or did acting come first? I mean, I'd always, you know, wanted to act and kind of deep down thought I would, like from back in the trailer days, my mom had these, this huge bookshelf full of movies, you know? Um, and, uh, I would watch all of them over and over and over again. She would throw away the, uh, the ones that she deemed like demonic, like once every couple months, she would have like an episode and be like, this is all demonic and throw them away. And I would dig them out of the trash and hide them and watch. And those are the good ones. And those were the good ones, you know, those were like, you know, again, like the Beverly Hills Cops and Gremlins and, you know, Terminator. And even I remember her throwing away Forrest Gump and I was like, what's wrong with Forrest? And it's because they, you know, did drugs or whatever. But yeah, so I, so that kind of came first, like my, my interest in the escapism of film and, and what that meant for me, you know. Do you remember watching those VHSs and, and being able to forget what was going on around you? Oh yeah. Yeah. They would. Yeah. I became completely engulfed in, in whatever I was watching, you know? And again, like I said, I would watch them over and over and over again. Right. I love the garbage can retrieval. Like the, yeah. so now you had, it was almost like pouring. You had a little hidden stash of like the good stuff that mm-hmm. they didn't know about. Yeah. Well then, and I'd slowly put them back on the shelf too. Sometimes <laughs> like, you know, like I just, I'd be like, she's going to forget, uh, like slowly filling the gaps again. And then, right. you know, and so like fully cementing her religious confusion. She thought Satan was returning them to the yeah, show. Exactly. Great. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You were the, you were the reason she was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They won't let me alone. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what, what were some of the perennials that were always, were always okay with her? Was it like Dr. Doolittle or something? Like what tapes were always safe? For were him? always safe. Like, you know, like Mary Poppins. Yeah. yeah. You know, all the Disney yeah, movies, yeah. but not, not even all the Disney movies. I think she would throw away like, you know, uh, not Cinderella, but the Sleeping Beauty, oh, the Witch, you know, yeah. stuff like that. But yeah, you know, all the super feel good. I think she was kept the sound of music, you know, maybe. Exactly. And that has Nazis in it. I know, I know. It's weird. <laughs> Old Yeller. Like, no comment on your mom, but that that's almost like a, you know, a single family version of like a, a fascistic overlord, right? Like they, they have like book burnings of inappropriate art and like... You know, oh, yeah, that. totally. Yeah. It's got to be exhausting too to have that constantly popping up in your head. It's... But it's funny how it like, it pops like that. It wasn't a constant. Like she would... She had this internal conflict in her head, whatever the critic from her childhood or whatever. And so she'd live her life and be like, whatever movie here, the, 
it makes my kid happy. Let him watch his movies too. Unclean. We must, yeah. must uh-huh. sanctify the household. Like, Period. I mean, she and she did that with everything. Like I, I remember when she was actually still married to my dad. She had a moment where uh, she wanted me to burn all my toys, and <laughs> and I did. So she like she, you know she had like and it was like He Man figures and all the things. And but the one that got me because I was like, you know, all of them were fine to go. You know, I was like, okay. So she like I remember throwing them in the fireplace. But the last one was you know Mogwai, my Gremlins doll. From the gremlins, yeah. And I was like, I don't want to no, he's the good one though, mom. He's the good one. Yeah, you know? the gremlin, the <laughs> and she she basically just said, Look, well, I'll leave it up to you if if you want to sleep with the demon in your bed every night. Right? Is that a quote? <laughs> and I was like, and I was really, you know, again, this was like this was before I was like either kindergarten or first grade. And I remember throwing Mogwai into the fire and, you know, bawling my eyes out, just oh like watching the, the last little thing, because it was an old one, you know, it was real glass eyes. And I just remember the little flickering flames in his glass eyes for the last thing, you know, like, you know, so she, she was doing this, you know, forever. So ever since I can remember. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Hollywood was like kind of a slowdown for you then, right? Like it, the, it seems like your your formative years were the John Belushi version of life. And then you kind of calmed down when you came to Hollywood. I, when I finally moved in with my dad, we, you know, that was a crazy, crazy time. We would have these massive parties where we were just giving out all types of psychedelics and all types of things. Oh, dad was supposed to be a calming influence. So you went. Yeah, back. no, that was not the case. We, so, uh, yeah, you know, around, around, I should have been in 10th grade, but I was going to homeschool, but it wasn't really a homeschool. I kind of just did what the hell I want. We got raided by the police. And when I mean raided, it wasn't just like, oh, yeah, they just showed up and knocked. They like batter ran the door and there was like 10 police cars outside the house and, and they trashed everything. And they didn't really find much. The most they've actually found was in my room. And the reason that they didn't find much is because an undercover had pulled me over when I was walking to meet my teacher one day. And he's like, you're supposed to be in school. And I was like, I actually meet my teacher at the, at the library, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, I know you're dealing. I know you're dealing. I'm like, you're not, I'm not dealing. He's like, I'll bring the dogs out. And I was like, bring them, you know? So I went home that day and I said, hey guys, I just got pulled over by an undercover. We should probably empty out the house, right? And so we did. We basically emptied out everything for the most part. Um, and then when they, when they finally showed up, they had like, most of the drugs were in my room. <laughs> and it wasn't much. I remember I had like, you know, a volume. I had like a little bud of marijuana. I, had, I wasn't, because I grew up around it, I think I... I was not a druggie, really. I didn't, you know, I didn't really party that much. But everyone around me was taking mass amounts of drugs. Wow. Was dad, like, mixing up the medicine? Like, what, what was he, was he still doing religious recordings and stuff? No, 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 no. Once he lost the, the company, I think that kind of changed his perspective on Christianity. And he basically, I mean, he'd say he's mediocre Taoist is what he says he is right now but he's you know he's not really anything okay so so did you get busted for the volume did dad go away so no so what happened was uh we pulled up on the street and it was my father and this like hippie friend who was buying stuff and the hippie friend had a half pound or quarter pound of marijuana on him 
And so like any good hippie, shoved it in his pants. He jumped out of the car and said, I'm running to Whole Foods. And so he just took off down the street. And we started driving back up to the house. And, you know, my dad's just like wide-eyed. And I'm like, what should I do? What should I do? Should I get out? And he was like, I, I don't know. And I was like, well, if, if, if I go in, I'm underage. They're going to call mom. They're going to call a family. And he just goes, I, I don't know. I have to go in there. My son's in there talking about my brother. So I jumped out the car and took off to the, to the neighbors next door who they had a apartment complex that kind of overlooked our whole yard. And he went in and about, you know, an hour and a half, two hours later, they took him out and they sat him on the, on the stairs in handcuffs. And I saw the same undercover that pulled me over that day to school talking to him. And then about 30 minutes later after that, they took my brother and my brother's girlfriend at the time and him and put him in the back of squad cars and drove off. And then I went into the house and everything was completely smashed. Like, you know, worse than you see in the movies. And except for, which is really funny, all my drums, I had a whole giant little section of my room was just music. Like I had a xylophone and a bunch of drums. And they were all perfectly set up and untouched. And I learned later that a cop came out while I was watching them. Uh, the undercover talked to my dad and said, sir, should we pop the drums? Talking about looking for drugs inside the drums. And the guy said, no, leave the drums. And then he turned to my dad and said, you know, I met your son. He's a good kid. You know, I think most of this is ridiculous. Talking about basically you know, marijuana. So yeah, I had my time. Yeah, <laughs> dude. <laughs> no, so basically, then what happened was I went to go live with uh, my dad's ex girlfriend. She was his ex even at the time, who was this amazing lady. And then I got a job playing drums for a musical in Aruba. And my dad had to sign me. I had, we had a family friend who was in the cast. And we were putting up a three-month run of Once on This Island in Aruba in the Holiday Inn. And my dad signed me over to her as my legal guardian so I could go to Aruba and play drums. And how old were you when this happened? I was 17, I want to say. And so you go to Aruba. Yeah. And you played drums for this holiday in production of Once on this Island. And did you see the performance on stage while you were playing drums and think, I, I want to do that? No, because I never wanted to do musicals. I was like, I don't want to sing. I'm just going to act. Well, no. But, <laughs> but, right. Yeah. I mean, I always had that in the back of my head that that's what, that was the end goal, you know, was to, was to be, was to do film and television for sure. And was that from watching those films? I mean, were you like, oh, yes, I want to know how these get, like, did you, when you would see these films, like Gremlins, for example, like, were you also like seeking out how they made the Gremlins or how that, you know, like the behind the scenes of, of acting or filmmaking at all? Yes, yeah, somewhat. But, you know, I mean, there wasn't a lot of, of seeking to be done considering this is, you know, there's no internet really. And I was living in the middle of the woods outside and you know like a tiny <laughs> tiny redneck town in texas 
there was no drama club. There was no, at my school at the time, uh, when I was younger, it was mandatory football. There was no just like PE. You had, you had to play football. Um, <laughs> That's as Texas as it gets. Yeah. Yeah. So there wasn't, yeah, there wasn't a lot of like-minded people, even for me to talk to about these kind of things, but, but yeah, definitely. I tried to, you know, I tried to soak up as much as I could, but definitely things, I want to say things like, you know, like seeing River Phoenix in the Indiana Jones movie being like, Ooh, I want to be him. You know, I want to, I want to do stuff like that. Or Edward Furlong in Terminator 2 being like, that's so cool. I want to be the cool hacker kid in a movie. Definitely like genre kid stuff of that era. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Escapist. Yeah. yeah, it's very escapist stuff, you know. But I also remember seeing stuff like Along the Waterfront really early and being like, oh, that's so this is when people started acting, you know, like right. this is this is when it became, you know. Is that is that just, your guy? Are you a Brando guy? Oh yeah. I mean, I yeah, I love Brando, of course. I can't I don't understand how anyone couldn't, you know. But I mean, my favorite kind of actors are very are more character-y, I want to say though, like like I love Gary Oldman, Philip Seymour Hoffman, those those kind of people who just completely transform. I'm I'm in awe of. So when did the craft come into it? I mean, you didn't finish high school. It sounds <laughs> you've had the school of hard knocks. You know, you were a PhD. Was it like you just wanted to get started, or did you think you needed like proper training? Like what 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 was your intro into it? I went to New York, right? Like I, I, a buddy of mine was driving to New York. He had taken a music management class from my father actually. And, and he was like, Hey, your dad said, do you want to go to New York? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, I'm going in a couple of weeks. And I was like, awesome. Well, I'll pack up. So, you know, I packed up like two drums, filled them with clothes and, you know, one little bag and jumped in a U-Haul with him and showed up in New York and my the only thing I knew that I was going to do was I was going to take my drums out on the street and play for people to make money. And I had done that a couple times uh, at festivals in Houston. They have like, you know, a street festival or a Bob Marley festival. And I'd take my drums out and made good money. You know, I made really good money. So, so that was the idea, right? I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to start playing. And, I'm going to, I'm going to, and then I'll find somebody. Somebody's, I'm going to meet somebody. And then that's how I'm going to get in, right? And that's pretty much exactly what happened. I started playing on the street I met some crazy musicians in Times Square that kind of allowed me to play with them and got into that whole world, which is, which is pretty interesting in itself. It was definitely a, uh, you know, it's, they were, they were gangsters. You know what I mean? Like a lot of them were actual, you know, bloods and crips and they were carrying box cutters. And one of the main guy I played with, he could, you know, throw a razor blade in his mouth and eat a bag of chips, you know, and, and spit it out and be ready to use it. And now he's an agent, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, now he's the head of CA. <laughs> I was doing that constantly. And then I remember doing a, a small documentary for this lady called Kika NY. And she, in the doc, she just kind of followed me around playing buckets and drums on the street. And what's it called? She, her name was Kika and it was called Kika NY. Is there video docs of you doing the drums back then? Doing the bucket? yeah, I think you could probably still find it. Mine was a, it was a joint episode that she did. It was half on me and half on these hackers in New York. So she just did all these you know stories on people in New York. But in that, she was like, "So what? What do you want to do?" And I was like, "Most likely, modeling or acting is what's going to where I'm going to transition." She's like, "Are you going to play drums forever?" I was like, "No, I'm, I'm guessing modeling is act or acting is." next for me. Shortly after that, I was, 
I was supposed to meet a friend. I was in Astor Place in New York and he was, you know, an hour late as he always was. And I had my drumsticks on me. So I walked around, I found a bucket, I started playing and this woman came up to me, Jennifer Vendetti, who is an amazing lady who was a print casting director and she was known for her street casting. And she came up to me and said, you know, I've been looking for you for a year. I gave you my card a year ago. I was like, yeah, sorry. We get a lot of cards. Most people want us to do free bar mitzvahs. So. And she was like, well, I'm casting a Levi's ad that goes to Morocco. Tomorrow's the last day of casting. Will you come audition? I was like, yeah. She's like, please. I was like, yes, I promise. So I showed up, I auditioned and, you know, they wanted, it was a bunch of different people. They wanted people with talents, right? So one guy was a graffiti artist. The guy was a photographer or a girl was a photographer, right? And I booked it. And so I, then I took off to Morocco to shoot this weird faux documentary for Levi's that was like a, a faux documentary for the net. Hold on. So a buddy says, I'm going to New York in two weeks. Mm-hmm. You pack your drums, you put some clothes in there, you go to New York, you play buckets on the streets of New York for how long? I mean, I did it for probably seven to nine years. I was, you know, even in between movies, I'd still go out and play, you know. Like, no, I, no, but how long before this woman said, I, I've been looking for you? Was it like a year or was it like, it was probably a solid three years. No, I think, so I moved there when I was 17 still. I think I met her when I was 20, I believe. Either 19 or 20. And were you trying to advance? Were you like taking classes for acting? No. You were just surviving. I was just hitting the streets. I was out yep. there. Every you were day. making cash and living life and in the yeah. big city and forgetting your troubles. Yeah, pretty much. I think we have to dub a new a new rule, Ryan Gibson, which is there are so many stories, success stories of actors specifically, where it's my buddy had a dream and he was going to this audition and I had to drive him or I tagged along because we were going to go score some mescaline after. I mean, there's a million, but it's very the same variation of I didn't really give a shit but I got discovered and where's the friend? And I, I don't know, lost touch with him or yeah, he owns a service station in, you know, Evanston, mm. Indiana. Uh, but it's like, did your buddy ever get traction? Well, no, he wasn't trying to get tried. This was, I was not actually meeting the guy I was playing with. He still plays. I was meeting a guy who's actually now a, a cop in Florida. <laughs> right. Who at the time was a rapper, which is a rapper turned cop in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, on the streets, I was had a lot of troubles. I mean, I was getting, I had, you know, there, so there's one guy in particular who would, who would rob me constantly and I'd see him all the time. Right. And he'd, he was one of the break dancers and he'd, he'd come up to me and be like, let me hold something. And, and normally when you, people would say that, like, let me hold something that it was like a, it was like a respect thing as far as if you've been playing all day and a, another performer hasn't you you give them like five, 10, 20 bucks, you know, to be like, oh, here, here's start off your day. You know what I mean? Right, for the community. Uh, yeah. Exactly. But but it wasn't that for me. It was let me hold something every day and I'm not getting anything in return and he's going to strong on me. The only way I was able to stay out there kind of is because he was kind of the boss, you know, and he, one day there was a festival or something. They had all the Times Square blocked off and, you know, me and my buddy were playing and they had really good money. And this guy comes up and the breakdancer and he, he sticks his hand in the bucket and he takes like three giant handfuls of money and he sticks it in his pocket. 
And, you know, my friend that I was playing with is off flirting with some girl. He doesn't see it. And the guy comes up to me and he gets like an inch away from my face. And he says, I'm deading you on this. I'm fucking deading you on this. That's your fucking cut. Right. And he rides off. And my buddy comes back and he's like, well, whoa, whoa, what happened to the money? Where, what happened to the bucket? And I was like, well, this guy came over and put it, took some. He said that was my cut. I guess that's my cut. And so he confronts him and he's like, look, man, you want me to bless you, but you know, fine, but don't stick, don't stick your hand in my bucket, man. Don't just stick your hand in my bucket. So the guy puts the money back, but obviously not all of it. So then we go up into the McDonald's right there in Times Square and we're counting the money. And my, my buddy I was playing with this guy, Will, was like, was like, man, it looked like there was more money there. And I said, yeah, it did. Well, right then, right on cue, the breakdancer guy walks up the stairs and he's like, what, you saying I took it? And I was like, no, man, he just said it looked like we had more today. And we, I said, I agreed. And then, so then he proceeds to just immediately jump on me. I'm sitting down, he jumps on me, he just starts pulling out my pockets. And he's like, what'd you get? What'd you get? And I'm like, here, and I like, kind of push him off. And I just like, take out my, all my wads of money. And I just hand it to him at the time. It was probably like, still like, it was a good day. Cause it was a festival. It was probably like 250 bucks, you know, just for me. And he took off $2 and he throws it at me. And he goes, that's your fucking cut. Right. And he puts it in his pocket. And then my buddy's will just kind of smiling, kind of smirking to himself, shaking his head. And then he's like, you know, the guy just starts to walk off and he's like, Hey man, my, Oh, by the way, my nickname is focus on the streets. Everybody call me focus. He goes, hey, man, Focus needs to talk to you. And I was, I was like, it's all right, man. He goes, no, no, Focus needs to talk to you. And he goes, what? And I was like, um, hey, man, do you just not like me? Or And the guy was like, what, are you fucking pretty? And I was like, no, man, I'm just saying, do you not like me? Like, what's the deal? And he goes, okay, I'll talk to you. Come here. And so like, he like puts his arm around me, walks me down the stairs, walks me outside, you know, McDonald's. And I'm, you know kind of shit myself at this point. Like, what's this dude going to do? And he goes, look, my whole thing is new jacks be kind of come out here, eat my food. Damn that. I've been on these streets for years. And I go, okay, man. Well, look, I respect that. My whole thing is I'm out here on my own. I'm paying my own rent. I'm paying my own food. I'm not on daddy's dime. Right. And, and he goes, okay. And I went, so can I get some of that back? And he goes, no, not this time. So that kind of let me out there and he would still come up to me, you know, once a week and be like, let me hold something. But, but that kind of allowed me to be out there. Long story long, that's, it wasn't the, just forgetting my troubles. It was definitely like, a, like a fight, you know, out there. And, yeah, it was, it was the fight, it was the street life. You were fighting, you were fighting. Yeah, street life. At the end of that, we ended up, uh, he ended up telling everybody, telling all the other breakdancers at one point, he was like, uh, hey, he labeled y'all as food. Like this one guy, you know, came up and he's like, hey, man, I'm sorry. He labeled y'all as food. So like people are going to eat y'all food now. And right then they robbed my buddy Will and me and these two other guys. And so then we, I was not allowed out there again for a little bit, you know, and then, and was, you know, I was just like, forget this. Like, this isn't worth any of this crap. Like I'm, you know, and then my buddy Will calls me. He's like, where you been, man? I'm like, what do you mean where I've been? I'm not going out. What? what? And he's like, he's like, you got to show your face, man. You got to be back out here. You can't let them. Da, 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 da. And, and I was like, look, man, I got bigger and better places to go. I'm not, you know, trying to have a scar on the side of my face from a razor blade like all these guys have. Like, I don't, you know. And he talked me back into it. So I went back out there and apparently he had made peace with one of the guys. And so they weren't going to rob us anymore. And 
constant looking over your shoulder out there for sure. And so when he got you back out there, is that when you got discovered? Like when you got back into it, was that when... It was shortly after that that that, that I had met Jennifer. And right. Did. So if you had given up, that wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't have been in that subway station or whatever, and she wouldn't have seen you. Yeah, for sure. Like I was... I. I, yeah, doors. 100%, 100%. Because, because even, yeah. even at that time I was still playing hand drums and I didn't, I didn't start even playing buckets until, until I got with another guy, this guy, Rob on bass, who's kind of a busking hero. He's the one who battled it in federal court and made it uh, legal to where you didn't have to pay for permits because he argued music is, is a form of speech. Right. So mm, love that. He goes by Rob on bass. His name's Robert Turley. And he's still, he's still an activist right now. He's, he's like, you know, still. He's really involved. And why do they call you Focus, by the way? Well, that came from when I first got to Houston, I was drawing people's names. Actually, when I first got to Houston from, my, from leaving the second stepdad, I, uh, I would draw a lot. And, uh, and I was actually put into this, I was zoned to this school in the fourth ward in Texas. It was ghetto. Uh, I was one of two white people in this whole school it was kindergarten through eighth grade. And so I was kind of drawing people's kids' names to not get beat up. And one day I wrote, I wrote focus down at the bottom of the page because I just write different things. And, and this guy was like, focus, that's hot, man. That's hot. And then I knew this other graffiti artist who was like, yeah, you should focus. That's cool. You should write it with a K, right? And then when I got to New York, the first day I met Will, I wrote down my name. And, and that was the first day I ever made money in New York. I, I, I was like the third day I tried to play and I hadn't made money by myself the other two days. And then Will kind of took me under his wing and showed me the spots. But the first day I met him, I, I wrote, Ryan, AKA focus at the bottom of the page. And he goes, he goes, focus, focus. That's good. Cat. That's good. Cat. You focus from now on. Cats want to know too much about here. You know, too much. They want to know your name. Don't, don't you focus from now on. Right. And so he just started introducing me as focus. And, and to this day, like I have a bunch of friends that call me focus or folk for short. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That's cool, man. That's a, that's a whole nother chapter. When you see this business, it's it's funny because I feel like actors live lifetimes like this. Like there's a lot of stories of performers that have been through a tough childhood and they're they're coming to either reinvent themselves or to maybe live in a world that they can control more or something. I mean, is it just all worth it? Like all this pain, I need to put it somewhere, you know, I need to get it out and turn it into transmute it into something good. It's definitely um, a good outlet, you know, for someone who's had, who's had a, a lot of, you know, I guess I'll say interesting experiences as a child. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to have lived something to be able to express real pain or joy or those, those things and be able to embody them in, in another character, another person, you know, to have something to draw from. All right, when we come back, we're going to discuss Ryan's sort of acting career and how he went from Texas child of neglect to New York street kid on the uh, <laughs> sort of like the Warriors meets breaking into a modeling, acting, and music career that we know and love him for. When we come back to Greenlit. Hey everyone, before we go any further, I just wanted to say that some of our favorite movies here are comedies. 
There's another show from Next Chapter Podcast that we think you might like called Midnight Public Radio. Created by the Washington, D.C. comedy troupe, the Midnight Gardeners League, Midnight Public Radio is a podcast for everyone who has a love-hate relationship with NPR. Sick and tired of all those horrifyingly depressing reports on climate change and boring human interest pieces on the guy who invented the ceiling fan? Like This American Life on Acid, Midnight Public Radio takes the world of stuffy intellectual broadcasting and shoves it through a gonzo meat grinder of semi-improvised sketches covering different aspects of our world. Featuring absurd characters and segments about things like illegal caterpillar racing, death conventions, and a riot at an old folks' home, this is a show for everyone who's ever thought all things considered has a stick up its ass. War. Sports. The culinary arts. MPR has it all. Listen to Midnight Public Radio wherever you get your podcasts or go to midnightgardenerscomedy.com to learn more. Now back to the show. I'm still reeling from the first 18 years of our lives. So I can't wait to hear about the next 18. <laughs> so when we left off, you were busking on the street, playing the, the classic paint buckets, which I've seen him go and it's pretty spectacular to watch. So yeah. I'm assuming this woman was passing by and she's like, this kid has talent. He's got a face. What, what are you doing tomorrow? Let's go to Morocco. Like she was a modeling agent. Yeah, that's right. She was she was a mainly a print casting director who was really well known for her street casting. She would just approach people on the street and find find new talent. So this was for Levi. So this was your first time in front of a camera, really, right? Like professionally. Yeah, professionally. I, yes, I would say this was the first. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of people that would take pictures of you on the street. I mean, have you always been kind of a ham? Are you sort of sensitive about being? photograph no i mean at that point no i was definitely a ham we would you know we would you had to play it up make jokes yeah, you know, yeah. do the whole entertainer yeah you hear something you like yeah totally yeah you hear something you like you clap you hear something you don't like you still clap and and you appeal to the crowd and you read the faces and yeah very much so yeah yeah, yeah. that's great that actually i've always i'm always interested in this how do you compare or process-wise, acting, theater acting versus like film acting or TV acting? Is it exactly the same? You're just sort of like adjusting, watching it? Theater, obviously, you have to be a lot bigger. You have to project. You have to reach people in the back. The back. In the, the back. back of the room. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I actually had never really done much theater. I think, you know, I've, I did, I played Oliver in the school play where I just sang two of the Oliver songs when I was right. in fifth grade, I think, but anything on, on stage, I still haven't. I still, the only thing I've actually done on stage was I did a reading for Robert Downey Sr. wrote a script uh, huh. where I was playing Steve Buscemi's son and we did a reading of the script at the public theater for around a couple hundred people or something. And I was terrified. I was like, I'm going to do this. I got to be loud. Oh, uh, no, I like Steve Buscemi a lot. But but yeah, that's actually the only theater I've, I've ever done. Okay. But technically, that wasn't theater, so. Do you see the camera as sort of like the rubes in the audience you're trying to get a five out of back in the subway? I mean, or are you doing something you don't care where the observation is? I mean, I know you're good yes. with like your marks and the technical stuff, but do you try to forget it and just be like 
be this person. I completely black black out the camera and just don't even. You right. know, hopefully, right. that's the goal, right? Like I, right. you know, and that's that, that's I think why I like film and television is because you can just you can you can talk in your regular voice. You can just bring right. the kind of mode, you know, and, yeah, yeah, and be subtle and do all the things that real humans do when they're talking. <laughs> So from the from the Levi's thing, I mean, was was it your feeling? Was it meeting other like performer actors in that space, or was it the agent? Like, what brought you to learning the craft of acting? So as soon as I got back from Morocco, Jennifer Venditti was like, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "I want to act." And she said, "Okay." <laughs> she set up a a meeting with. Susan Batson, I was going, I went to go audit one of her classes, right? And loved her. She's a really intense method acting coach in New York who still to this day has a lot of big clients and is, is one of my favorite teachers because she was, she was just the most intense little woman that would just scream at you and get like these amazing performances out of you and, and was not nice. She wasn't, she didn't, she didn't sugarcoat anything. You, you know, there were several people that left bawling and never came back. Well, wait, you didn't run out on the street and be like, don't let them win, man. You got to come out and show the colors. You didn't do the whole game, the <laughs> speech about. No, you know, on, you got to show who's boss. No, no. So I was, I was just terrified. It's everybody else. Were you like ruthless, like out of my way? He was like one less competition. That's right. Later. Yeah, exactly. And then yeah, there was totally. one. Yeah, yeah, totally. You know, the only thing she would give if you did a good job, she'd just she'd give you a Hershey's kiss, right? And I remember having those Hershey kisses like they were my Oscar set up <laughs> on my nightstand. You know what I mean? Like I'd set up a couple private lessons with her, which were were more just like therapy sessions. Like I just kind of told her about like what I'm telling you guys, like my childhood and what had happened. And at the same time, Jennifer had set me up a meeting with Endeavor before it was WME. And without seeing me act or do anything, they said, okay, we'll take them, right? Just off the meeting because we had a good meeting. So I had Endeavor aligned, but Jennifer was still worried, I think, because she knew I was obviously still green and whatever. But the real, a real big moment for me was was Susan calling Jennifer and at the end of one of our private sessions and saying, he's ready. He's ready for anything. The harder the material, the better. That's what she said. Ooh. Yeah. That's like one of those giant kisses. Yeah, exactly. So at that moment, I was like, okay, let's go. Let's, let's do this thing. Um, and also right then she was like, I was going to set you up with this other manager but I think I might want to manage you. I've never done it before. What do you think? Jennifer's telling me this. And I was like, I love you. Yes. You know, within a very short period of time, I was in classes. I had, you know, one of the bigger agents and I had a manager. And I remember I booked my first two things. I went out on a Rite Aid commercial. That was a Christmas spot. And I ended up booking that as one of the, you know, drummers drumming. And then I had met this, director at a comedy club. Uh, I was just sitting there watching the show and she came up to me afterwards and was like, I'm sorry, do you act? And I was like, yeah, I do. And she set up an audition and I ended up booking that. And it was my first audition. 
You booked your first audition, you dick. I booked my first two auditions, my first commercial audition and my first film audition. And, and it was for the lead of, uh, of, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. And so then it was kind of off to the races. They were like, okay, well, you can book. We're going to start sending them out, you know? And where did it lead you from there, Ryan? Well, I mean, you know, I've, at the time I was still, I was still hitting the streets like crazy. I was still like out there playing for, for ends meet, to make ends meet. But I also was booking these films. Like, you know, I did Mudge Boy with Emile Hirsch and that was one of my really early projects. And then I remember, I think the first project that I was, that like, like I bawled when I booked it was Home at the End of the World. That one was a big one for me. Just because of the material or? The material and, and you know, the people that were in it, just to be, to be finally associated with, you know, uh, with those, you know, kind of names um, was, a, was a big deal for me. You want to tell the story of, the, of that movie? Yeah, Home at the End of the World is a book Michael Cunningham wrote. He also wrote The Hours and it was coming off of the uh, Nicole Kidman's win for the hours. So it was his next thing. And I was playing, or I played the older brother of Colin Farrell's character when he's a kid, right? So the first... Yeah. Yeah. The, By the, the way, first, this is Colin Farrell, Robin Wright Penn. Um, Sissy Spacek. Uh, Sissy Spacek's in it. Yeah. Uh, big, big actor big Dallas Roberts, yeah. So yeah, big cast and uh, big project. And Tom Hulse was producing. Ron Amadeus, you know, he's said some amazing things to me that kind of set me off too. It's kind of the story of this love triangle that that kind of ends fairly tragically in uh, basically Colin Farrell's life, you know. And and yeah, it starts off with me the first, you know, I don't know, ten fifteen minutes of the movie where I'm kind of the lead. I guess I can ruin it, right? I can, spoiler. Ends with, tragically, with my death, you know, and that kind of sets off Colin Farrell's character to, on his journey, so. Did you find any connection between your young life growing up and this movie? Oh, yeah, 1,000%. I mean, my character, yeah, Carlton was, you know, his, his character was like, it's written in the book. It's not really explained, but the party that, that I die at in the book, he, um, he invited all his teachers and his friends because in his world, we should all, the teachers and the students should all be like best friends, you know? And he gives his little brother LSD at a young age and his little brother walks in on him having sex and he like, he's like, don't be weirded out. Kind of gives him a speech about, you know, why it's okay to, to, to love another individual and it's not. It shouldn't be weird, right? And so, yeah, he was just this very loving hippie character, and I and I definitely related to that because I kind of considered myself that when I was around that age. Like, uh, you know, I was very open and caring, and wanted the best for people, wanted to believe the best in people, and really just enjoyed life. You know, and like I really connected to that character. Would you say that was? I mean, you said you cried, you bawled, you yeah. physically emoted from getting chosen to be in that. When you were on set with these folks, would you call it your greenlit moment? Was this your moment where you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm actually, I'm here. This is what I've kind of, maybe I've not been thinking directly of this the entire time, but <laughs> this is actually pretty awesome. I think for sure that was one of the times. Because like I said, it was, wasn't just a, an indie with people that I'd never heard of. It. I'd know, I knew those names, you know, I'd watched 
Princess Bride a thousand times. It was one of the VHSs that I dug out of the trash. So yeah, it was a it was a big moment. The love on that set, you know, the outpour of like support was really big. But one of my favorite things was was at the end. So they've shot some of it in Toronto and then some of it here back in the States, but all of my stuff was shot in Toronto, right? So I get done with with filming and Colin and I become friends and he was like, oh, mate, you staying for the rap party? And I was like, no, man, I'm, I'm, they're not going to put me up just to stay for the party. I'm, I got to go back. And he was like, he's like, oh, no, you got to stay. You fucking, hey, crash on my couch. And I was like, are you still got to work? Are you sure, man? He's like, yeah, you fucking crash on my couch. You know, so... I ended up staying for another week afterwards, just sleeping on Colin Farrell's couch and hanging out with him and, you know, drinking beer and shooting shit with him and having fun. Being accepted into that community was a, was a big moment for me. Everyone answers this question differently. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's by being recognized on the street. Sometimes it's what is more inspirational and life-changing for you. It sounds like this film was that. You know, you were working with people that you read their names on VHS boxes when you were younger. Well, wait, what was it about? For you, I mean, everybody has a, right, everyone has a different line, but was it that? Was it the, like, acceptance in a peer group? Like, like, oh, I can keep up with these people. I might not, you know, have their careers or their longevity, but I I can actually function in this group. That's a a great question. Yeah, it it was definitely that. And I think the projects that came shortly after also kind of solidified that, like, you know, and then I did, I did another movie with, with Emil Hirsch and, and Sigourney Weaver and Jeff Daniels uh, called Imaginary Heroes. And, and that one I had even a bigger role in than, you know, than the than Home at the End of the World. And, you know, that kind of solidified, like, oh, okay, this is, this is really doable, you know? Okay, so did you fanboy out with Sigourney Weaver? Were you like, tell me about Alien? She's the best, man. Her daughter loves drums. And so when she's, when Sigourney saw me play, she was like, I, you got, got to take you to my daughter. You got, she has to see this. She's going to love you. And she, you know, she, Sigourney's just a sweetheart. And I didn't have any scenes with her except for one. And we didn't have any lines together. Um, but she, yeah, she, that was a, that was kind of really cool. You know, being like, Oh, I love you at aliens. I, I didn't say that, but, but, you know, I bumped into her years later in New York and she was like, oh my God, how are you? you know, totally remembered me. He was like, you still playing and all those things. And yeah, she was, she's great. That was, you know, that was a big moment. I did this movie Band Slam with Lisa Kudrow. And I remember, I never really watched Friends much, but I obviously knew who she was. And when I did the few episodes I saw, she was my favorite character. And, you know, I remember just thinking like, what a talent and how, and like how professional she, she was. And that's like, how I wanted to be, you know, and there was a, there was a scene where I'm playing drums and I'm just like winking at her. Right. Cause the joke is I like older women and I don't know that she's the lead character's mom. I think it's his sister. And I, I throw her my drumstick at the end of the song. Right. Well, they keep pulling the camera back and so there's no lines on Lisa's part. She's there for my eye line. She doesn't have her stand in, you know, whatever. She keeps, they keep pulling the camera back until the point where they're, they're up against the wall. And Lisa comes up to me and she's like, Ryan, I'm so sorry. I don't, I can't fit behind the camera anymore. And I was like, God bless you, Lisa. Like, go, thank you. I can do it. I like, I can do it to a piece of tape. Like, thank you so much for being you and like doing that. 
you know? Yeah. I mean, you always want to hear that. Like uh, there's a, there's a great story about few good men where the big, like you can't handle the truth monologue for Nicholson. He kept doing it over and over full blast, full speed for Mm -hmm. everybody. Close-ups, right? And the, the way it works in film is, you know, you you cover different actors for their close-up, right? So the equivalent would be like, okay, so you want the close-up of Nicholson when he does his big speech, but when you show Tom Cruise reacting to it, usually it's Tom Cruise reacting to someone just reading lines for him, and he's just acting, you know, he's he's bringing the heat, and that's credit to a good actor. But what Nicholson was able to do to get everybody's game elevated is, okay, now I'll do it for Kevin Bacon's close-ups. Now I'll do it for Demi Moore's close-ups. And yeah, it's awesome. at some point, Reiner was like, you know, Jack, you can take five. He's like, no, man, I love acting. This is great. It's a good, good part, good, good monologue. I'm here. But anyway, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, that's what I, I mean, I found my very limited exposure to like the greats or the biggies is like, they're kind of awesome to deal with. I don't know if it's because they're awesome just intrinsically or because they're at peace with themselves for being successful at what they do and being appreciated. But it seems like the egos that I've found on a set or in the business are are the mid-rangers who are Mm -hmm. kind of like unsure of their position. You know, they say dogs fight in the street and bark at each other when they're the same size. Uh-huh. If they're very small and very big, everyone knows what, you know where where the pecking where, order where the, is. Yeah, it's the hierarchy. It's the it's the same sizers that are like, well, am I above you or below you? Right. So the yeah, great no, definitely to be easy to work with. <laughs> definitely all the all the biggest names are the are the people who have been the most humble and the most giving. You know, yeah. I've you know, I think a lot of the younger people I've worked with, uh, you know, I've had people just off camera for my coverage, like not looking at me, chewing their nails, looking up at the sky, you know, and, you know, or, or just not giving, not, you know what I mean? Like not giving at all back to you. And right. When their close-ups done, they're just checked out. Maybe they're standing there delivering lines, but they're certainly not in a scene. They're not acting with you. Yeah. Yeah. Are you working with younger people and you're like, come on, man. Like when I was your age, I was doing X. Like, is there a, is there a work ethic there? Is it the same? Is it different? Yeah. I look younger, so I get cast, you know, younger than I am. And I think that, so yeah, I often get put around people who are actually younger than me and and the age that's written on script. And yeah, I can, there's definitely times where I've been like, you know, I don't know if the, I don't know if they have, are going to have any longevity because of their work ethic, you know, because they don't, because they're not giving. It's so apparent when you, when you work with somebody like the caliber I was just talking about, like the Kudros and the Weavers and Jeff Daniels and those people. Yeah, that have lifetime careers. It's, a, it's not. It's not an accident. Yeah, it's not an accident. There's there's a reason they are pros and and they keep working. You know, and like one of my favorite things, um, uh, Robin Wright said, um, we were all out to dinner, and she was like, you know, I'm I try to keep working. I just worked with this older actor, and we had shot all day, and I asked him where he was going, and he said. I'm going to class. And she was like, that's how I'm trying to be. Like, she was like, we we filmed all day and then he went to acting class, right? And and there's a reason those people, you know, they work, they work on their craft and they and they care. Are, are you in a class? No, I'd, I'd love to start another class. I mean, I just got back yeah. um, to town, obviously. I've been, been out of town for well, 
a while. So, um, but no, I'd love but to get periodically through your career. You'll dip back in to kind of refresh and learn some more stuff or. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I'd love, yeah. We're like working classes. out at the gym at this point or exactly. you actually like, yeah. Yeah. It's like flexing the muscles. You know what I mean? Like you, you want to keep doing it. it. Auditions are great for that too. Cause you're, you're constantly working, but like being in a class and like actually taking on, you know, whether it's a scene or, or you're doing a cold read class or whatever it is, you know, um, just, you know, constantly flexing those muscles helps. Like it puts you in a headspace where you're just ready, you know, when something comes that you love and you're just, you're ready to tear into it. So yeah, I definitely would love to, to get back into class. Are you of a certain school or style that you prefer or, or have you tried it all? Like I would, t- I would like to take a, a class at the Strasbourg Institute that I have a friend that actually teaches there who used to teach under Susan Batson in New York. I grew up obviously doing method, but I like it all. I think there's something to take from, from everything. Speaking of auditions, tell me about this recent, I mean, it, w- it was coming in for years, the taped audition, uh-huh. but now... Like I just watched the Val documentary on Amazon. I don't know if you guys have seen it yet, but I recommend it if you're a fan of Val Kilmer. Oh yeah, I do want to see that. I did a movie with Val, actually. I never met him, but I was in a movie with him. (laughs) And uh, so he was an obsessive home movie guy. Like every time the latest video, home video uh, recorder would come out, he would bring it to these sets. So it's like Top Gun and back this behind the scenes of all his movies, basically. But the whole thing was he got really into, like he really wanted to be in like Full Metal Jacket. So he self-taped like all this stuff and sent it to Kubrick and like went to London to like hand deliver it or like, Goodfellas was coming out. So he actually made a like a, a short film as Henry Hill, dyed his hair, wearing wardrobe, doing VO, like kind of feeling it out. Awesome. And he, yeah. he was pretty good. Yeah. But it's like, it's that thing. He took it, I mean, that was in the 90s for God's mm-hmm. sakes. But now what I'm, this was my long rambling question is, how is in-person audition uh, different from now the sort of ubiquity of taped auditions? Well, oddly enough, I actually have booked a lot off of tape in my career. Like, OC was off of tape. I never went in the room. Two or three other ones where even when they were doing in-person auditions, I'd either be in New York or somewhere in LA and it was shooting in New York or whatever. Tapes, I actually enjoy tapes. So for me, I kind of feel at home. I enjoy being able to do it until I like it or... And I normally don't overshoot. I don't, I don't try to do it like 30 times and pick the best. You know, I, I still try to knock it out and be like, okay, this is get the character down and, and do it four times and then pick one. You know, like don't, don't get crazy about it. It's funny you say he, he videotaped all this stuff. You know, apparently um, I worked with a guy who, was, who had coached Heath Ledger and he, he said, you know, Heath was freaking out about, about Batman. Right. He was, he was like, Nicholson's played this character. How am I ever going to, you know, do all these, you know, and like, how could I, whatever. And, and the coach was just like, I was just like, look, you can shoot five of your own movies off the money that you're going to make from this. You know, he's like, you're going to get the mouthpieces in, you're going to, you got the voice and you're going to be great. And he apparently filmed every single scene over and over again on his own. Yeah. He watched them and yeah. And worked it really, yeah. really hard to, to like get get the performance he wanted out of himself on screen for him to watch first, you know? And do you think the, I mean, I'll ask you that, like the, the famous thing with Alec Guinness is he's like, he's not, 
he's pre-method or, or he's you know anti-method in that uh-huh. he's about like oh they put a fake nose on me or they put a beard on me or they you know there's something about the period costume like he finds it he sees himself in the mirror as the character, character and that yeah. is the trigger you know the inside out I because I saw some of those tapes when he got that weird scarring and he had to wear the fucking goofy like lips that were sort of stuck open and stuff. He said, you know, like he was saying that it, it kept making him drool. And that's why he started doing that weird kind of lip licking, creepy thing. You know, have you done any like, I don't know, crazy makeup or scarring or anything that like a costume maybe that like helped you inhabit a character like that? No, I mean, I haven't done like prosthetics really yet or any of that. I, and the ones I have, it's always, I'm dying, you know, because I die in so many movies. Right. Well, you're too pretty. We don't want to cover you. Yeah. Up. <laughs> they, no, they, they, always, they always kill me. So, I, you know, I've, I've been shot a bunch. I've had a, had a piece of glass stuck in my neck. I was asphyxiated. I was, you know, all these things. So that's most of my makeup. But no, I, I totally get that. And there's definitely times that just the wardrobe will do it. You know, it'll tell you, you can just stand in front of the mirror and, and you start to get it, you know, you start, or you start to get the voice of the character. You start to get the, the wants and needs of that character, right? Right. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would love to, to be honest with you, I would love to have some thing where I'd put on some crazy prosthetic and I definitely think it would help or it definitely takes you somewhere by doing that, right? Well, actually, come to think of it, we killed you too. You were- I know. You're I know, actually, I die. I know, you killed me. With mother the, death, yeah. I yeah. Think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just die you all the time. Space. You, just, you just want to kill you. <laughs> yeah. I think that this is the time to really, and then we've sort of like delved into it, but I like the approach here. Rather than take a specific movie that has inspired you, we sort of discussed offline that you wanted to talk about the, the healing aspect of just movies in general. And I guess it sort of boils down to this, you know, we'll call them the, the secret VHS cache, your friends that you would revisit. What was in the secret? Well, we named a bunch of them, but stuff like, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, like I said, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, all the Ghostbusters. Oddly enough, Big was thrown away. Tom Hanks is big because Zoltar, Zoltar, yeah. Oh, Zoltar. Zoltar. Yeah, because of him. (laughs) Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Not the original, the C. Martin one. Yeah, Oklahoma, Oklahoma. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously, all the Indiana Jones were just evil as can be. Kali Marshall today. The Terminators. We had Apocalypse Now, which I don't even know how that's made it in to her collection, but that one definitely I kept hidden. American Heroes, Ryan. Those are American <laughs> Heroes. Yeah, yeah. Although there's a massive amount of drug use. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't even know yeah. how, you know, I don't think she even allowed me to watch that one before she threw it away and I hit it. Force Gump, I think also because they do drugs. Goodfellas. So it's like that era. It's the, it's really the mainstream Hollywood output of the like late 80s, 90s. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was Ghost. I remember the Time Machine was a big one that she showed me. Which which era time machine? The fifties one? The yes, yeah, yeah. after time or Guy Pierce? Oh, well, that was later, though, wasn't that? Was that that was like late nineties or two thousands, right? The Guy Pierce one, the early one. These were your playmates. Did you have a genre that you were you got lost in the most? Because I know you we've talked about maybe the horror that there were some horror titles or some 
thriller titles that you were interested in? I didn't watch a lot of horror. I think like the scariest I would watch would be something something wicked this way comes, right? Like now, I don't care what anybody says. That movie for a child and even a thirteen, fourteen, a teenager is a scary movie. That's a scary yeah, movie. Totally. I don't think that movie it's dark. gets any. It's dark as hell. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. Uh, Ray Bradbury, right? He wrote Fahrenheit yeah. 451. He, he writes some dark, dark things. No, it was a great movie. It was so kind of stylized. It had that, you know, it, it always felt like autumn when I was watching it, regardless of what time of year it was. You know, it just had that, has those, those dark, cool colors in it, you know? Yeah, I, that, I love that movie. I, that's another one I'd watch constantly. Jason Robards in that movie. I, I remember because I always thought, when he was in it, he always had that actor dad face. There's not a lot of people that anyone would probably recognize. Oh, no. Jonathan Price and then Pam Greer was in it. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Price is. Yeah. Jonathan it. Price is like the dude, right? He's like the lead of the car. Very young Jonathan Price. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great movie. Fun fact Jonathan Price was lost out to play, I think, Belloc or Tote from Indiana Jones, from the original Raiders. Really? Wow. Huh. It was either the head Nazi or Belloc himself, but yeah. Well, he's kind of, the guy that they got him, they got to play Belloc. Who is that guy? The guy who plays... um... He's also a Brit. Very good actor, too. But yeah, Jonathan Price, Diane Ladd from Mm -hmm. the old days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was a goodie. It almost felt like a Twilight Zone or something. It just... Yeah, exactly. A lot going on. And and it was a Disney movie. Yeah, it's a Disney yeah, that's another thing. That's the funny yeah. thing, yeah. Uki, when, when Disney, that early 80s moment when Disney was experimenting, like Black Hole was pretty dark. It had a dark the Black ending. Cauldron. Black oh, Cauldron. Oh, yeah, Black Cauldron. Wow. It was yeah. interesting times. Yeah, I mean, they made Tron at that time. Tron, great. Another one. Another great one. It's also on Disney Plus right now, The Black Cauldron. And in the story, the, there are some YouTube documentaries about The Black Cauldron and Disney's. That movie was their most expensive movie they ever made. And it might be even to this day. I think they ended up spending something around like $500 million on that movie. And it was in development for like 18 years. It was insane how long. It's, it's fascinating. But that was, you're right. Alex, well, that was, the, uh, that was the whole Don Bluth legacy, right? Oh, he, right. Yeah. Exactly. He was the director of that very distinct art style that uh, flavored uh, Dragon's Lair, Space mm, Dragon's Lair, yeah, exactly, yeah. And then he went on and did Secret of Nim. He had started his own studio. And oh, man, sort of I love Secret of Nim as well. Yeah, Secret of Nim had that Super very dark style yeah. of the time. But yeah, they just, it, Secret of Nim would not have played at Disney. Like some of this stuff had to go off campus. And that was uh-huh. when Eisner took over was that era and uh, just enacted sort of the brandification that we know of Disney today. I mean, that was a fun time in movies for us. A lot of people crap on the 80s as like sort of a fallow period for music and film, but it's so subjective, pop culture and film especially. And of course, you know, like, oh, something wicked, you know, it probably doesn't hold up either with effects or story or whatever, but it's like a beloved uh, childhood friend. You're not going to judge it for having a beer gut now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I I think it's completely lost to people. I don't think people know that movie exists, but I will say that every time growing up in the Midwest, hearing train whistles in the fall when the leaves are coming down, 
I all of my mind always harkened back to the train in something wicked. I I remember renting it in at the you know video store over and over again just because it was so dark. Like just it's such a crazy story. Yeah, and it just puts it takes you back there every time. I think for me, yeah. it's one of those ones that you pop it in, and you're immediately just kind of taken back to this that world and the space that you were in the first time you saw it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Like, were you a blockbuster kid? Were you, I, I was. Uh, we just I showed my my daughter Scream last night, okay. and there's like a scene in the video store, and she's like, "Where are they?" And it just, <laughs> I mean, somewhat like where it was too small. For, they we didn't have a blockbuster. In most of these little, we didn't either. Dark we just spots. had a, we just had the local video store. Yeah, did it have brown? It didn't have that, I don't think. Did it have the uh, the uniform like brown plastic cases? Because we had we had one of those too. Even that act of like the Friday night at the blockbuster scene or at the local video, the most popular video store in town, where it was like crowded and people mm-hmm. were like vying for like the good tapes because that was like the cornerstone of the Friday evening or something. Do you remember that? That was like a cultural touchstone of that era was like going to the video store, you know, because you'd see a whole family. What do you guys want to watch? Oh, you know, it's gone now. I mean, everything has just been put into the box. And now I, I don't know. I mean, I'd love to hear your guys' opinion on it, but like, are we, are the theater, are movie theaters, movie palaces going to go the way of like horses? Like back in the day, horses were the, you know, cornerstone of our culture, right? They helped us, you know, settle the country and move goods and services and whatever. Now horses still exist, but it's just sort of like a little niche thing, like like LPs, like people ride horses sometimes as a small club or like an activity or whatever. I love your better. Yeah, I'm just saying our, exactly. <laughs> so our movie's going to become just like that, you know, Thing, like like LPs, like a clubby sort of like. I don't think so. I mean, no, no. The only reason I say like uh, and and can say with with uh, evidence is I just saw the Big Lebowski at the Hollywood Cemetery, right? And it was. I figured, you know, because of COVID, there might not be near as many people, but it was packed. Like it was. People were way past the line that you're supposed to be on. Like I sat way in the back between these two crypts, you know, it's, and everyone was freaking out. Everyone was having a great time. It was, and I, I think, I don't think that that will go away. I think, you know, the, the community of, of watching with a bunch of people you don't know and, you know, having those mutual moments that you're sharing of, you know, laughter or fear or whatever emotion it is, is kind of timeless, you know, like people like to experience those things together. If you think about it, you, it's, there's nothing else in the world or in our lives that's like it. There's, you can go to a bar, you can go to a restaurant, you can go to a circus or a fair or whatever, you can go to a live performance. But there is nothing like a group of people who love The Big Lebowski, who go see The Big Lebowski for what it is, and almost get more joy out of it because you're surrounded by people who are getting 
that it's like a joy multiplier. And I don't think that ever goes away. It's, it's too much of a human. There's no chance anyone's getting in a fight. Well, until after maybe everyone's there in a good mood. I mean, it, it's just that brings us all together. And that's the way film is timeless. It? I mean, that film, the big Lebowski is what now 30 years old. Don't forget to check out other episodes of How I Got Greenlit, including our recent talk with Changing Lane screenwriter Chap Taylor. The good news about being a writer is always this. Of all the jobs in the entertainment business, writer is the only one that you can do without someone else's permission, right? If you are a director, someone has to hire you. If you are an actor, someone has to hire you. If you are a director of photography or a costume designer or a production designer, Someone has to hire you. If you are a producer, you know, you either have to invest your own money or get somebody else's. As a screenwriter, all you need is a, is a laptop or a legal pad and an idea and a lot of work. You'll hear that and lots of other entertaining and informative tales from the screen trade from today's leading filmmakers on How I Got Greenlit, wherever you get your podcasts. And now back to the show. That's why I brought up Days and Confused. Hadn't seen it in years, went to Hollywood forever. But I think you're sort of, we're splitting the difference, meaning I'm saying it's not going to be nearly as ubiquitous, but you're saying, okay, maybe, but it's going to be more, even more of a social activity. Like seeing it, by the way, I recommend that to everybody, Hollywood. So in Hollywood, it's this old, beautiful cemetery, mostly Jewish and Armenian, but a lot of like famous actors from a certain era are buried there. And so they have this big open lawn and they literally project theaters on the side of the mausoleum where all the stiffs are. And you watch these classic movies and it's always packed and it's always fun and everybody's in a good mood and it's a picnic and it's a summer. It's become like a summer thing, like going to the Hollywood Bowl or something. That's great. That's an evening out. I'm just saying like, I just miss my, you know, when I moved to Hollywood, I used to go to the the Beverly Cinema and, and pay like a dollar, I think it was like two bucks to see like, remember when there was second run movie theaters, you know? And oh you yeah, just, dollar, oh, theater. dollar Theater. But all those yeah. places are back. All those places are Are they back. coming back? Oh, and not, not only that, but like when I was back in Indiana uh, this past couple of weeks uh, on my little vacay, the, I drove by the AMC a few times during the week. Packed. Pack. Yeah, pack, pack, pack. People are back. They're, yeah, I mean, you're, they're never going to, you know, okay. it's Fair never going to go away. You're going to get that. You, they, they're going to want the smell of popcorn, you know, the sticky floors, that's all the chatter that you love those things, right? If you're a moviegoer. I don't know about you guys, but I have my, my dark moments lately where I feel like I dedicated my life to buggy whips. You know, it just feels like... <laughs> <laughs> No, you know, no. I, you know what? I just I rewatched the, the the pilot for The Sopranos, and and he says something very interesting. He's like, he's in therapy. He's trying to be vague about what he does, but he's like, do you ever get the feeling like you got into something too late, and the glory days are behind us, and you're just kind of riding it out? And I have to be honest, like on a bad day when things aren't going right, I'm kind of like, yeah, what the hell? I mean, my kids. I mean, they like going to the movies, but is that just because I raised them that way? Like, it, does it matter anymore? I'm going to say something probably even more tragic than that, which is 
I think everybody feels that way about anything that they do in life. I think everyone feels like it used to be the big, like it was the big time. By that much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, somebody it's just never as good as you thought it was going to be. I, yeah, Look, that's the whole joke of uh, Midnight in Paris. The, the you know, sorry, the, the the artist formerly known as Woody Allen. Um, so he goes back in time to the twenties, which, as a writer, I I relate to that too. Like, oh wow, that's when everybody was kicking ass and they were all friends and they had salons and whatever. And all they're doing in the twenties is lamenting, like, oh, the eighteen nineties was where. It was <laughs> <laughs> we, missed it, man. we just missed it by that much, you know. They knew it was up, and sure, yes, great. Yeah, the grass is greener, right? Like they right, like dog right. shit. I, know, you know, I don't know. I mean, we're on maybe maybe we're on the the cusp of like the next big thing, and I mean, virtual reality has been the next big thing for as long as I can remember. You know, mm-hmm. but, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Well, we're a social animal. So. Yes, we are, and that's the part of what going to the theater is. It's, you might be sitting in a black room, a dark room without lights and watching a film and not saying anything, but it's the connection that you have to everyone else. It's almost like it's uh, telepathic. Yeah, we're all la- we all end up laughing at the same lines. We end up feeling the same fears. That right. right, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's like symbiotic. We're, we're all getting something from each other in the room, right? Well, cool, man. Well, look, this has been Greenlit. This has been Ryan Donahue. Where can we catch you next? What's the latest? What's coming? What's what's happening? I have a film coming out called Beyond Paranormal. And then I've been working on a lot of music. I'm probably going to release some music fairly soon just under my name, Ryan Donahue. Do you have an Instagram or anything you'd like to plug? Sure. I am on Instagram, and it's just Ryan Donahue. And on Twitter, but I don't really tweet often. I probably should more. But yeah, my name's spelled weird. It's D-O-N-O-W-H-O. Ryan Donahue. And Beyond Paranormal, according to IMDb, release date April 23rd, 2021. So check it out. Beyond Paranormal. And are you on Spotify? Where do we where do we hear you? No, not yet. We're, it's coming. Sound, SoundCloud. Yeah, I actually did put up some songs a while ago on SoundCloud. Are you in the one of the nine and the Union Station stop for your for your buckets? Oh, if yeah, no, I was <laughs> I was always at the L train platform and Union Square was my stop. Yeah, Union Square. I feel yeah, like Union, Union Square, Square was, was like the epicenter of busking for. Yeah. It was so well, it wasn't for a long time. I, it was actually I was mainly in Times Square at the beginning, and then once I mm-hmm. stopped playing in Times Square and kind of went off to do my own thing with just one other drummer, I took over Union Square, and I'm I kind of pat myself on the back for pioneering that spot. Me and my buddy, nobody <laughs> nobody was trying that spot, and now when you go to the L train platform, it's always packed with uh, with people <laughs> waiting to play. Yeah, Very exactly. Well. It's been a rare privilege for us. We've known each other for a long time. What's great about this is I learned a lot about you, man, and it just makes your story even better to me. But I love you. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Really appreciate it. Great guy. Yeah, brother. This was fun. Both of you. Hey, man, love, love both of you guys. We have to have to get a drink IRL sometime soon. Oh, yes, absolutely. No doubt. All right. Well, for Ryan and Ryan, this is Alex Legion. This has been Greenlit. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, folks.
porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Next Chapter Podcasts.